I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'm at the British Association of Parental and Enteral Nutrition Annual Meeting in Belfast. I have with me Dr. Daliwal, who has recently published a review in the journal on nutrition in liver cirrhosis. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. This is a really important topic. Can you give us some background as to the issues with nutrition in liver cirrhosis and what you were trying to highlight? Thank you, Mark, for the opportunity to do this. Nutrition in cirrhosis is extremely important, and that is because liver disease is currently the third most common cause of death in the UK population. And with this ever-increasing endemic of obesity in all ages, including adults, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is becoming more prominent and more prevalent as an etiology of cirrhosis. It also encompasses multiple comorbidities, which all require nutritional support and management. And so identifying and recognising malnutrition in these cohorts of patients is crucial. So you can be overweight or underweight and still have a nutritional issue. Yes, so malnutrition is often misunderstood and commonly associated with undernutrition, where you would expect someone to be underweight. However, um, a person can be malnourished and overweight. Uh, This is quite commonly observed in a spectrum of patients who have something called sarcopenic obesity, where they are malnourished. However, their BMI or their weight as a total is raised. Okay, now that's interesting. So the mechanisms in liver cirrhosis are? So there are several mechanisms. So and if you think of nutrition as a balance, so energy in needs to equate to the total energy that we expend. So the total energy we expend is based on several factors, uh, our resting energy expenditure, our physical activity, which is varied among a uh, patient group with liver disease, and um, food-related thermogenesis. So in patients with liver cirrhosis, there are several mechanisms. So there is a mechanism of hypermetabolism, and that leads to an accelerated starvation phase where you are very catabolic and you're breaking down uh, muscle, essentially. Um, Those subset of patients with cirrhosis often have reduced physical activity. So you can see that the balance that you need for good nutrition is impaired. Liver patients also have poor glycogen reserves and that again leads to an excess muscle protein breakdown um, because you need to obtain amino acids that you need for gluconeogenesis. And when you have that excess uh, muscle breakdown, it leads to a phenomenon called sarcopenia. So this fancy word simply means the reduction in muscle mass strength and function. And so you can see the overlap between patients who are malnourished and those who have sarcopenia. So you can be sarcopenia, you can have sarcopenia, that's the right word, isn't it? You can have sarcopenia and be underweight or overweight. I think people struggle with that, but that's the important message. That is um, key. So you can be underweight and overweight, and the management of it is slightly different. So whilst you want to increase uh, muscle synthesis, uh, so you predominantly want to aim for higher protein uh, content, in the subset of patients who have sarcopenic obesity, you also want to try and lower the fat. And that is a tricky um concept to recognize and to manage and that is why you need it takes a whole 
village or a team, uh, which would include, you know, your dietetics input, uh, nutritional nurses um, and uh, your medical team. So are there good tools to assess this? Because there's a lot of controversy about nutritional screening tools. But, you know, you've got a patient in front of you in the clinic with liver disease. How do you work out if they've got sarcopenia? So I would break it down into three categories. So one is the observations that we all make, but we don't recognise that we're making. Uh, two, the general tools that you can use. And then three, the specific tools available for um, the subset of patients with liver disease. So going back to one, when we see a patient or greet a patient, we shake their hand. So the old school mnemonic of a good handshake uh, still exists. Because you, if somebody has a poor grip strength, their handshake will be poor. If somebody uh, walks into your clinic room very slowly or with the use of aids, you can tell that their functional capacity is diminished. If somebody uses the armrests to raise from a chair, you can also then identify that they have a degree of muscle wasting or a degree of uh, decreased functional reserve. So we're making all of these subconscious observations all the time. So you could use that in conjunction with uh, specific tools. So um, we or press on about uh, must screening, which every patient, uh, regardless of what they come in with, should have. Um, so that is another way of identifying those patients. Um, you can look at BMI. So with patients with liver disease, you're looking at their dry weight, for example. So lots of patients have ascites. So it's important that we take weight or BMI that um, is used without the excess fluid on board, if you can. And then we have uh, liver-specific tools. So the Royal Free developed a nutritional prioritising tool, which has been validated in uh, patients with liver cirrhosis. does need more validation in certain subsets, but it's a useful tool and it incorporates some of the things such as weight, BMI, but also with functional um, tests such as hand grip. So what you're saying is there are tools to help this, but good old-fashioned clinical medicine, which we sometimes forget, looking at what's in front of you and interacting with your patient is really very effective for this condition. And that's good to hear, actually. I very much believe so. I believe the old school medicine, looking at a patient and listening and just taking a few moments to observe them, you can identify extreme muscle wasting in terms of um, loss of muscle, predominantly in the tops of people's thighs and the upper arm and even their face. And whilst we may not know that it necessarily means sarcopenia, I still believe a good physician can tell whether someone is malnourished from And an bedside. absolute key message of what you're saying is you can have obesity and malnutrition and they're not separate things. No, they are fundamentally the same. The management alters slightly, but the key principles remain true. Okay, so the treatment's interesting. So I always think when I'm uh, thinking about nutrition, you know, what about the energy? What about the protein? What about the vitamins? So how does all of that fit in when you're thinking about how to improve someone's sarcopenia? Maybe if they're underweight, maybe if they're overweight, you know, it's probably different, as you say, for both. Yes, that's true. So there are two different concepts. So in the group of patients that have compensated cirrhosis, and then there will be a group of patients that have decompensated cirrhosis. And whilst the main factors of treatment remain true, such as a high protein diet, the targets alter slightly. So if, 
for example, in a compensated patient with cirrhosis, you would... So compensated, just to be clear, that means somebody who's functioning reasonably but has got cirrhotic liver disease, whereas decompensated, they might be in hospital, they might have bleeding, they might have complications. So is that how you're making that distinction? You're pretty well ill or not ill? Yes, and if you think of Charles Pugh's scoring, if you think of compensated as your uh, Charles Pugh A, perhaps an early B, but um, your decompensated would tend to score in a B or C category. So that's another way of trying to decipher between the two groups. Uh, so with a compensated cirrhotic, we would recommend an energy intake of about 25 to 35 kilocalories per kilo per day. Um, and the protein content is higher than the average um, healthy individual at 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilo per day to maintain muscle mass. So in a compensated cirrhotic, you're trying to maintain their functional reserve, if not improve it. Whereas in a decompensated uh, patient with cirrhosis, you're trying to improve it because they are decompensated and deconditioned as a result. And do you have to work to get the protein intake up? Because with some chronic conditions, the patients will eat lots of carbohydrate to feel better. So sometimes the strategy must be to really push the protein intake to achieve that. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And lots of patients often struggle to um, consume enough energy or enough food to meet their requirements for lots of different reasons. So ascites, that can cause pressure in your GI tract and you um, patients often describe early satiety. Um, we have uh, your physical health affecting your mental health, so mood can often play a factor in your loss of appetite. Um, there are other factors such as malabsorption, which means that some patients don't always absorb, so despite what they're eating, it still remains inadequate. And the key factor with patients with liver cirrhosis is to reduce that accelerated starvation. So you don't want prolonged periods of uh, starvation or periods of fasting. So what we do recommend is uh, two to three hourly meals, so little and often really, um, with snacks. And we often, especially in decompensated patients in hospital, um, press upon them the need for a bedtime snack. So you have a sort of carbohydrate-based snack before you go to sleep to um, reduce that fasting time um, and to improve muscle mass. So one of the things about nutritional support is it is always need to give supplements. So some of this can be achieved by diet, some need supplements. So, so what about the supplements? When do they become indicated? So often uh, patients will need supplementation to meet the high protein uh, content. And supplements aren't without their own challenges. So, for example, um, taste is a huge factor in which supplement you give to which patient. Um, you have to consider other factors so for example if the patient has a raised BMI or overweight uh, you want to also try and have a lower uh, fat content or lower calorie content to try and reduce that weight whilst increasing the protein so that can pose a challenge um, the other factor is lots of patients have comorbidities so diabetes is uh, prevalent and as you know, that lots of nutritional supplements have a higher sugar content, so that can play havoc with people's glycemic control. So again, that poses an additional challenge, all of which can be managed, but requires input from lots of different members of the team. Um, but occasionally, patients can modify their diet to optimise their protein content. Um, however, what we found is it's unlikely to be enough alone and all nutritional supplements often are key. Nasogastric or gastrostomy ever indicated? 
So yes, uh, enteral feeding is indicated. So as you would expect with uh, someone who doesn't have uh, liver cirrhosis, if a patient is unable to maintain their nutritional uh, requirements via oral diet and oral nutritional supplements, then enteral feeding would be the next step forward. And we do have some patients who do require that to get them to a level where they then can maintain, um, especially in a decompensated patient with cirrhosis. So, so one of the messages that you're giving me is that if you've got serious liver disease and we're in an epidemic of liver disease, with it now being a significant cause of morbidity and mortality, then you should have a team looking after you and that team should include a dietitian. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. An early recognition. So a patient who is admitted with decompensated liver disease is likely to score two on MUST, MUST scoring, which every trust complies with. So that would score um, immediately to highlight the need for a dietitian. And it is important to include them in the conversation and include patients in this because actually nutrition is the aspect of their care that they can be in control of, they can have some autonomy with, and regardless of whether you have cirrhosis, um, which is compensated or decompensated, the nutritional element um, is crucially important. And do you think that's available? Have we got enough dietitians to do this? Or is it like many chronic conditions where it's a fight to make sure you get the team resources to look after the patient best? I think with the varying levels of care within hepatology or in hepatology service so you have transplant centers to uh, you know smaller district hospitals which may have one or two hepatologists i think that some of the nutritional care with regards to patients with liver cirrhosis is quite niche but i think with widening um, education and recognition i think it can be achieved in every hospital in every trust um, i think part of the challenge is recognizing it early Yeah, I mean, one of the key messages I'm getting from you is don't forget that if you're overweight, you can still be malnourished and think about sarcopenia. And certainly to me as a pediatrician, it's a useful word that describes a significant issue that we can all try and address and help with. So have you got any key messages, summary thoughts or final comments that you'd like to um, conclude with? Yes, so I think that the key take-home messages um, that I would impress are, one, obtain an early and accurate assessment of a patient's nutritional status in patients who have liver cirrhosis. Two, to recognise that you know, protecting the muscle and the need for increased protein is um, often key. Uh, three, to minimise fasting times to uh, combat prolonged starvation and avoid further muscle breakdown. Um, Four, to recognize that the protein requirements do change in compensated to decompensated. And five, to remember that functional assessment and functional intervention is a key um, part of someone's nutritional care too. Thank you, thank you. This has been a very interesting podcast and I've certainly learned a lot. Um, The full paper is published online and includes a case description to take you through some of these concepts and some additional information on each of the issues discussed. So thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Please refer to the journal for the full paper. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology.